is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories, too. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll put them together, and we'll send them right back out to you over the airwaves. Your stories are as good as any we put together. This next story is a really good one. We love telling you stories about people you should know, but don't, and particularly about innovators in their field. Because there's always a lot of pain in innovation. There's disruption, and in disruption and change, there is often difficulty. And this next person, while I happen to know him well, he's my doctor. Let's throw it to Joey for a remarkable life story. When you think of leaders in innovation, who comes to mind? Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs? All true giants in American history. Some of those stories that we've told on the show. But how about Cooper? Dr. Ken Cooper. You probably haven't heard his name, but you should have. He's the physician to presidents and CEOs and has helped put astronauts in space. And if that's not enough, his life's work has most likely impacted your life personally. Do you exercise? Has anyone, a loved one, or a doctor ever told you that you should exercise? Well, like it or not, the father of that movement, that way of life, is Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics. The practice of vigorous exercise to strengthen the heart, lungs, and general health. Aerobics, a term that before Dr. Cooper wasn't even in the dictionary. Today, it is largely accepted in medicine, but not so much in the 1960s. Here's Dr. Ken Cooper on the medical community's response to his book titled Aerobics. And let's just say that the doctors and scientists at the time, especially the older ones, were not too receptive of this revolutionary thing called aerobics. When the book first came out in 1968, I actually saw titles in medical newspaper articles that the street's going to be full of dead joggers. There's more Americans follow Cooper. Every time someone had died while jogging, I heard about it. And I thought for a while I was responsible for that. But then you start putting the figures together. And you see that when people start reading the book, 1968, had 100,000 joggers. By 1984, we had 34 million joggers. And by 1990, we had 35 million joggers. And from 1906 to 1990, heart disease dropped 48%. All of this began while Dr. Ken Cooper was working in the Air Force. Cooper was recruited to create the fitness program for NASA astronauts, where he would refine his big idea, aerobics, the groundwork for preventive medicine, a practice that, quote, focuses on the health of individuals, communities, and defined populations to protect, promote, and maintain health and well-being, and to prevent disease, disability, and even death, a medical practice that America, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is in dire need of. It's been deplorable that the obesity in our children has gone from 13% in 1990 to 33% overweight or obese at the present time. Our adults have gone from 33% in 1990 to 80% in this, in this country. We haven't done much about it. 76% of the diseases we have are the result of our lifestyle. 45% of cancers are preventable. And we spend twice as much money as anybody else in the world on health care, and we rank 43rd in longevity. Too much care, too late. And so we've got to make those changes. Changes that Dr. Ken Cooper would experience in his youth. 
As a kid, one of Ken's dreams was to become an Olympic runner, and he was pretty darn close, running a 4 minute and 30 second mile in high school. And back then, that was a big deal. But such is the case with many of us, Ken's fitness would take a sharp decline as he would start the next chapter of his life. I got to college for four years and soon discovered that obesity is the most common manifestation of stress. So I jumped from 168 by the time I finished medical school, internship, and I got married. For an eight-year period, I did nothing to eat. I gained up to 204 pounds. I was dying of mental apathy. I was, had to go in the military for two years to pay back the being deferred from the draft. During that was in the Vietnam conflict. But then something happened to change my life. I've been an excellent water skier during my youth. At 29 years of age, I went water skiing for the first time in eight years, trying to ski a slalom course here at Lake Texoma, southern Oklahoma. About halfway through the slalom course, way overweight, deconditioned, I had a cardiac arrhythmia to hit me. And I thought I was having a heart attack. My heart just jumping out of my chest, beating very, very rapidly. I was lightheaded, and I thought I was going to pass out out there on the water. They got me over to the site, got me on to the emergency room. By the time I got to the emergency room, it was all back to normal. I had a very extensive workout back at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio with my heart, and they couldn't find anything wrong. One thing wrong with me, I was out of shape. And so that shot me back into reality. So I lost the weight within six months. I ran my first marathon a year and a half later. And as you know, I ran for 40 years before I broke my leg snow skiing back in 2004. But what happened to me, Prior to the time I lost that weight, I was hypertensive, I was borderline diabetic, I had no energy. I told my wife I felt like I was dying from mental apathy. That all changed. And I felt much better, physically fitter, less depressed, less of a hypochondriac, improved self-image, much more positive attitude towards life. That happened to me. And I thought, this is a field of medicine that's been sadly ignored, what we can do for ourselves. I was planning on being an ophthalmologist. An orthopedic surgeon. I finished my two years in the military. But this dramatic thing happened to me. I think that was divine because the Lord had a plan for me. And so that changed my life and changed my direction. I transferred from the Army to the Air Force to go into the space program. I thought I'd be a NASA astronaut. Lost the weight, running regularly. Ran the Boston Marathon twice. Became a quote-unquote expert in the Air Force because Master's of Public Health the first year at Harvard School of Public Health. Worked on Doctor of Science next year. Left, went back to the military, and I was the Air Force expert. Worked in designing exercise program for the astronauts. Developed the aerobics program while I was in the Air Force. So that episode with my obesity problem, I was able to change my life, and that probably saved my life. Because the uh, majority of my medical school colleagues graduated in 1956 were the same thing. And back in those days, half of them smoked. And now there's only 20 of us left because I'm afraid that most of those uh, colleagues of mine didn't have that wake-up call that I had at 29 years of age, and they died young in life. And so I think that was a wake-up for me that it saved my life and changed my profession. And more on the life story of the father of aerobics and one of the leaders in preventive medicine in this country, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper continues after these commercial messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper. And by the way, he had said earlier, the Lord had a plan for me, and my goodness, he did. And Dr. Cooper's a believer and a man of science, and that happens every day here in this great country. Let's pick up where we last left off. We left off with Ken's accident shocking him back to health. An accident that with the additional inspiration from a book he read, would thrust him into a vocation that would help people from around the world live healthier and longer lives. I read a book entitled Halftime. And in this book, Bob Buford said you can be successful, not significant. That was me. You can be successful, but not significant. I was successful in the eyes of the military, but you can't become a general officer unless you have some administrative experience. You've got to leave what you've been doing all those years. I said, I'll gladly finish my 20 years. Let me stay here. I'll get a rank of a colonel. I'll be perfectly satisfied. Let me stay here and continue what I've been doing. I'm having an impact on the military. Until after I left, that the Air Force said the most significant contribution that Air Force Medical Services made to medicine was the aerobics program. A program whose potential was not fully realized at the time. And because of the military's administrative glass ceiling, preventing him from rising through the ranks and making a greater impact, Dr. Ken Cooper decided to take a big risk. I'm getting out. I had no insurance, had no separation pay, had a wife that's pregnant with my son, Tyler, and a five-year-old daughter, moved from, with our dog, Christy, a Cocker Spaniel, we moved like the Grapes of Wrath from uh, San Antonio to Dallas. It hadn't been for Joe McKinney and the Totter Corporation called Saturn Industry back in those days, I'd be here today. Because after still in the military, back in 1968, he read the book, Aerobics, excited about the book so much that he asked me to speak to his corporate executives at Lakeway down near Austin, Texas Lake Travis. And so I spoke to his top executives there, and he was so enthralled with the concept of what I was talking about, the aerobics program and all, and the book, that he said, if you ever decide to leave the military and you want to come to Dallas and start something of your own, let me know. I put that in the back of my mind. But two years later, I came to Dallas, and I thought that I had two successful books, but you don't have any, I had a financial statement worth about $25,000, and that was all. You don't have much money, particularly myself, softback books back in those early days. And so I thought I could raise enough money to build this center, starting with only 8.6 acres. But I went to savings and loans, and they uh, wanted to know what I was going to use for collateral. I thought that was something around the blood pressure obstructed. Sorry, son, we can't help you. And I just finally bummed out. And I went to Joe McKinney and said, Joe, here I am. I, I can't do it by myself. Can you help me? We'll try. And so I needed $1.6 million to buy this property here, the first 8.6 acres of 30 acres we have now. And so he said, okay, put it before his board. We won by one vote. That they loaned me the money, no interest. For six months, I paid no interest. And so I was able to buy the property. And then it took me 11 months downtown before I could move out here, early 1971. But I had to borrow $2,000 a month, pay mother to employees. I lived on savings. So it was tough. And they got to Dallas and uh, went from, from the, fire to, from the fry, from frying pan to the fire because this was very controversial back in those days in 1970, 1971. 
After years of refining and practicing aerobics, and collecting an incredibly large amount of data, Ken's mission, his vocation, would become mainstream. But it certainly wasn't easy to get there. And to fully understand how Dr. Ken Cooper would successfully weather this pushback, we have to understand his relationship with his father, a man who wasn't foreign to such criticism. His father, a Depression-era dentist, was similarly rejected by the science community for subscribing to what was at the time also revolutionary, the nutritional supplementation of vitamins. So my dad was a strong proponent of vitamins, the alphabet tablets. And back in those days, even when I was in medical school, I was taught that vitamin supplementation was worthless. It makes the pharmacist rich and the toilet water very expensive. And you're wasting your time on vitamins. And to some extent, that was true back in those days because we had good food, good diets by and large. We had not a lot of processing foods like we have at the present times. And, and the foods weren't deficient in vitamins like they are at the present time. And that's what's become necessary for us to supplement our diets with vitamins because the processing food, the growing of food, the deterioration of the soil, all these various things. So my father was ahead of his time there. And so he wrote strongly recommend, and I grew up with the supplemental vitamin therapy. I thought he was nuts back in those days because I was being taught to the contrary in medical school. And here, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is how the medical community responded to his father. They all thought he was a quack because his emphasis on vitamins but they also accused my father of practicing medicine because many times people would come to him with their pyrrhea problems, their dental problems, but changed their diet, changing their diets, and they found that their, that their arthritis improved and their diabetes improved. And so he actually saw other benefits by trying to improve the situation in mouth that had a total body effect. They'd actually accused him of trying to practice medicine without a license. So that was how much innovator my father was. He felt threatened, but he's still the same as I've done. He stuck to what he believed until the time of his death. So my father, without question, was a tremendous impact on my life. But I think what he, more than anything else, what he taught me was discipline. Was my weight, my diet, my exercise, my studying, my good grades in school. All these various things I attribute to my father. Ingenuity, determination, and discipline all qualities passed on by his father to help Ken weather the trials to come. Here's Ken on how the medical community responded to aerobics. Exercise was dangerous. It shouldn't be done. Past 40 years of age, they'd have a heart attack. That was still prominent thinking up until 1989. After collecting data on the effects of exercise and stress testing on health, Ken started to make waves releasing their projected findings that aerobics would not only drastically improve your health, but add six years onto your life. We published that front page, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, American Heart Association said for the first time in all these years that your aerobic capacity is a major coronary risk factor. In 2009, we had uh, 96,000 people, men and women, who had fought it for 20 years. And we predicted, we couldn't prove this yet, but we predicted our men would live 87.5 years, women 90.5 years. That's over 10 years longer than the national average. That was predicted and controversial in 2009. But within the past couple of months, Harvard School of Public Health 
published an interesting study on their physicians and nurses study. 34-year follow 126,000 people in the study. They looked at these risk factors. Proper weight, proper diet, exercising at least 30 minutes, no use of tobacco in any form, and then only minimal alcohol consumption. Five things. And what they showed, those people had, didn't have any good risk factors. The women's average life expectancy was 79.5 years, and men 75.5 years. But they had none of those risk factors. The average life expectancy for men was 87.5 years, women 93.5 years. Almost exactly what I said 10 years earlier. Based on prediction, it's now come full force. That has happened so many things now that I predicted, had criticism of all magnitude that have come full circle. And you're listening to Dr. Ken Cooper. He just happens to be my doctor. But my goodness, the things he's teaching Americans about weight, about diet, about exercise, and people around the world, how to control our health care costs, well, do these things, and how to extend your life and live better and longer. Do those things. Eat right, exercise. Again, at the time, people thought he was crazy. We learned this from innovators in almost every walk of life that we've covered thus far. And 30 years later, look at the data and look at the research. Men living 87.5 years, women 90 plus. More on Dr. Ken Cooper's story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter. And if you do, you'll get our five best stories each week in print and audio form. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Ken Cooper's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics and preventive medicine, and one of the leaders of preventive medicine and healthcare around the world, not just the United States. And we left off with Ken receiving great criticism from the scientific community, claiming that exercise and stress testing would not help, but actually harm patients. Ken's findings would prove otherwise, and unfortunately, so would some patients. Back to Ken with the story. A 57-year-old pastor here in town, and he heard me speak at a luncheon, trying to generate patients I'd speak at the Rotary Clubs and things like that. Never got paid for anything. But then he heard me speak and heard me say that if you're over 40 years of age, you should have a stress test before you start a vigorous exercise program. 
because most common first sentiments of your heart's disease is sudden death. People don't bother until it's too late. You heard me say that. And so he came in my little office, way overweight, 57 years of age. I put him on the treadmill. I stopped in two minutes. I said, sir, there's a prominent pastor, a very large church here in Dallas. And I said, sir, you have severe coronary disease. You need to be hospitalized immediately. What do you mean? Your EKG is grossly abnormal. Oh, I saw my physician the other day, did a resting EKG. Said, you don't have any heart disease. That Cooper's a nut. I'll run him out of town. I said, okay, sir. If you're hospitalized for the next 24 hours, I'm washing my hands of your case. Called his physician. I've been practicing medicine now for 62 years. And the only one time I've been cursed up another physician. And that was that physician. What are you doing, you so-and-so? You ought to get back in the Air Force. You're a nut. I'll run you out of town. You're a quack. Oh, okay, sir. I'll accept that. But the fact this man has serious disease needs to be attended to immediately. I don't believe that. That's a bunch of baloney. Okay? I'm washing my hands of his, of his case. And 10 days later, sitting at his desk, he collapsed and died. And the first person to call me was that physician. I didn't know. I didn't know. He's afraid of malpractice because I'm sure he told the family, forget about Cooper, he's a nut. And he was afraid that somebody going to file suit because he told the patient, don't worry about him. We lost a very prominent and successful and talented pastor who could, could be alive today. But fortunately, years later, after many trials and tribulations, the medical community has not only taken their target off of Dr. Ken Cooper's back, but has embraced aerobics and preventive medicine. The Lord's given me a long life to see it happen during my lifetime. So now it's, it's worldwide. And as you can tell, Ken is not only a science guy, but also a God guy. The media tries to tell us that they can't coexist, but Dr. Ken Cooper has reason to believe otherwise. I went to, uh, with my son to climb Kilimanjaro in Africa, 1989. There were six fathers and sons in the group. I knew ahead of time I couldn't uh, spend the whole time because I didn't want to go above 14,000 feet because I had too much time in the Air Force at a high altitude. And I didn't want to have more damage to my brain. So I just planned on going to the 14,000 feet. But going across the border there, going in from Kenya, where we trained for about 10 days to climb that 19,000 foot mountain, and going across the border from Kenya into Tanzania, they wouldn't let me across because I had a stamp in my passport from South Africa because the apartheid and all that. No, no, you can't come into Tanzania. That's not possible. Well, I asked the guide, what's going to cost me? About $35. So I bribed my way to get in to Tanzania. But then after I left the group, I did go to 14,000, but up and back one day. But then the next morning, I was being driven back to the border with a gentleman who didn't speak any English. And so I was getting close to the border. I started really worrying. I'm illegal. I don't have a stamp in my passport to get me through here. And if I find out that I have that stamp from South Africa, they may put me in jail. I mean, I was terrified, literally. And I didn't know what to do. I was by myself there and no one, didn't know anybody. Most of them couldn't speak English. And I was actually standing in line with two people in front of me when all of a sudden this beautiful woman dressed in white came up beside me. Dr. Cooper, I've been waiting for you. Give me your passport. And so I gave her my passport, walked up. She opened the passport in a very profound voice. She said, stamp it, so he couldn't see anything. And then he closed it back up, gave it back to me, the one there. 
I was the only person who saw that, that woman. You think that was happenstance? To my dying days, I believe that was an angel. And that dying day doesn't seem to be any day soon. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, is still working harder than ever. My wife has made the comment, don't you wish you had as much a passion about anything as my husband does about what he's doing? And that's true. It's what keeps, I don't have to work anymore. I'm well off. I can retire. I'd be bored sick. Gone for almost three weeks. Beautiful cruise. I could hardly wait to get back. And see, patience. I mean, yesterday I had Charlie Duke here. Only one of four living astronauts who's walked on the moon. He was here yesterday. Been my patient since 19, 1998. So that type of thing, I love my patients. Had a new patient today. I spent an hour and a half with him or longer. And he just couldn't believe I'm spending so much time with this patient. Because what has made successful and why patients stand in line to come, he was an overbook that I took today. Wasn't planning on taking a patient today, but I enjoy it. And he's a top CEO, he's not CEO, he's, but his CEO has all the people coming here. He's the top vice president of his organization. And I had a delightful time with him. That motivates me. I enjoy my work. How many people you know at seven years of age who still enjoy their work? You know, uh, I like what uh, the promotional speaker of uh, uh, Zig Ziglar once said. You don't retire, you refire. I'm still refiring. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, still refiring indeed. At 87 years old, exercising, maintaining a healthy diet, and living longer, healthier, and happier. All because he follows his own advice. Dr. Ken Cooper, from helping put astronauts in space to helping society become healthier. For Our American Stories, I'm Joey Cortez. And great job on that, Joey. And thanks also to the Stetson family office in New York. And they work well diligently on this issue of preventive medicine and the Healthcare Impact Foundation, which they manage Well, they're trying to solve this problem for cities and countries around the world because, my goodness, we're chewing up so much of our money as a society on care that comes too little and too late, as Dr. Cooper acknowledged and is working his life uh, to help fix. And also, I'm a patient with Dr. Cooper, and I can only tell you in four months I'm going back. And uh, he does put you through the paces, and you go on this treadmill, and he's, he's like a coach. You're a little afraid of him, and he spends two hours with you. Two hours you're going to have a doctor with you. And at 87, he's on fire, and he is working a full day. And when you go in and you spend some time with him, after that two hours, boom, the next person's coming in, and then the next, and then the next. And he was telling me that his little routine includes a movie with his bride on Saturday nights, a little break on Saturday afternoons. He comes into work on Saturday, too, just to review all of the the patient's files to make sure everything's working right. Uh, This is a guy who loves his work, and Americans love work, and we love talking about Americans at work. Work is so important in our lives, and my goodness, it gives meaning to our lives. I might also do a call out to Bob Buford's book, Halftime, because it changed so many people's lives in this country. If you haven't read it, you should pick it up. And that whole point about having a successful life, but not a significant one, well, it really hit a lot of men in their 50s. And they just changed. They started changing things. And I mean really changing things. Dr. Ken Cooper's story 
here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all the things that we do. And again, sign up for our free newsletter. Please get friends to do it too. We'll send you our five best stories each week in audio form and in written form if you prefer to read our stories. But my goodness, it's so much more fun hearing the voices of these people. The legend, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and it's time for another installment of our Founders series with Doug Ryder. Doug has spent his life recruiting executive talent for companies across this great country and along the way he's encountered remarkable stories about how everyday Americans risk it all to follow their dreams and turn their ideas into businesses. Here's Doug with one of those stories. Today on the Founders. I was always pushing the limit. Always. Always. This is the story of a young woman whose career led her to a big public company, and she actually got something done. The seeds of her success were present at birth. As a child, her tenacity stuck out like a sore thumb. We were sled riding down in the backyard at my great-grandmother's house, and we lived down the street, and my mom was yelling for us to come home, and... I said, I just have to do one more. And I jumped on one of those like old radio flyer sleds and went flying down. My zipper got caught on the sled, right at a tree, broke my arm, because I had to do one more. I'd bounce back and do one more again. I just do. You never know what you're gonna miss if you don't try it again. This girl grew up into a woman that loves to solve problems and make people's lives better. Her drive was the engine, her fuel, tenacity and she takes it everywhere she goes. I was a bus person at a restaurant and I worked my way up to waitress, cocktail waitress. I was just hungry at that point. Anything I could do, the more work I could get, the better. I mean, I used to come home from college and do two and three shifts because I had great respect for the people whose profession it was, um, was to be a waiter or waitress. And I know a lot of these people, one gal had two kids. She was a single mom, she never got a break. So when I came home from school, um, I'm like, yeah, I'll take your shift. Give me all the good ones, the bad ones, I don't care, I'll do it. So they couldn't wait till I got home so that they could take a little bit of a break because that was their daily life. Beth earned her bachelor's and master's in human resources and launched her career. She started in big, male-dominated, engineering-driven public companies. A great place to start if you're a young engineer, very difficult for a young woman in human resources. I always was met with, you can't do it. How can you go run a technology company? You don't have a technology background. I just never even thought any different. I'm just doing it. It never entered my mind. On today's episode of The Founders, we bring you the story of Beth Potraz. You can't replace roll up your sleeves and just get it done. You can't replace walking through the fire. You just have to do it. I started at Helene Curtis, a really cool, sexy consumer products company making beauty products, professional hair care, 
skincare. Working at first as a recruiter, Beth's first job was to fill positions for their brand new state-of-the-art distribution center. And I looked at that list of 99 jobs and I, I went and met all the manufacturing unit managers and I actually went out and did every single job. I was a packer, I did palletizing, I worked with the compounders to make the, the product. I did all the jobs because I wanted to know what it was I was hiring for, right? I got a lot of credibility. I worked all the shifts. We had 12-hour shifts. We had three eight-hour shifts. And we were seven days a week. I knew every person in that plant was like five or 600 people, and I just loved every minute of it. So I did those jobs, and I moved. Um, actually, I started as a recruiter, and we were organized by discipline. And then it was my idea, along with a colleague, because I was hiring. They were in employee relations. And what we were discovering is, because I was even doing internal placements, what we were discovering is you might talk to somebody, but yet they've been just been written up two days before. And we didn't have, you know, a lot of computers at the time. I mean, I had a big wall in my office with little bitty magnets that represented roles with people's names in them. So I could see on a glance what production lines I had jobs open for and how people were moving around, kind of a, like a living org chart. So we said, this isn't working. We have to get closer to the business. You know, my mentor always said to us, HR is nothing but a cost center. You have to be able to show how you can add value. So we really took that to heart, and we really were into, you know, what keeps you up at night? What's your problem? How can I help you solve it? That talent was a key part of solving a lot of their problems. So we uh, proposed a new org structure and introduced the HR generalist role, and then each got assigned to different aspects of the operation. The reason we rep recommended the new approach is because nobody could have a true partner at the table, sitting in on their staff meetings, really working the problems and supporting the leaders on executing their plan. Because when they came down, they had their plan and it was very clear, but they had to go to different people depending on what the topic was. And it was really frustrating for them. So we said, well, why don't we just each get assigned to someone and then we can learn to do it all. And we'll work amongst ourselves if we don't have that expertise to broker that in. So that's what we did, and I would say to you that every single one of them, if you were to ask them, that was a turning point for them as well. And they all would say that's when they discovered the true value of HR as not being an administrative processing. It was more than just getting people paid on time or getting them hired or dealing with a performance issue. We were intricately involved in everything that they were trying to, to accomplish and always you know, there to offer creative solutions whether it was me supporting the manufacturing engineering group, materials management, or the people on the production floor. From there, Beth went to Rockwell, another big engineering-driven public company. I worked at their flagship plant in Twinsburg, and we did it. We implemented self-managed work teams. The culture was amazing. We put in a performance-based culture, so we combined performance and development and team development and individual development along with compensation and pay and just did a completely different approach in HR. So that was fantastic. And during her time at Rockwell, she had this great idea. Why don't we treat employees as consumers? What a concept. Treating your employees with as much deference, respect, and importance as you treat your customers. It was revolutionary, a completely new way of looking at things. Back in the early 90s when the war for talent was coined and had started, I thought to myself, you know, employers were going to need to start looking at employees as consumers in the employment relationship whose needs varied and would change throughout the life cycle of their career. 
you know, early in your career, it might be important to you to go to conferences or to have cool gadgets or tools to do your job. You may want more vacation because you have, you know, younger children and you need to have more flexibility. You know, later on, you may want more contribution to your 401k. Whatever the scenario was, we would have to be able to create packages and create an experience that would would align with people's preferences were and what they needed at that point in their life. She returned to her former employer, Helene Curtis, which had been purchased by Unilever, a huge international company. Imagine the challenge of a 30,000 employee company of creating a benefits package that made every individual unique and feel like they had their own. Most would say it can't be done, but she did it came back to Unilever, worked with the scientists and engineers. They were all inventing things. They were getting patents left and right. And I thought, I want to go invent something. So I came up with the idea, using this employee as consumer, that I could create a technology where you know, you would ha- you'd be able to create your own employment package and have it feel like it was a one-to-one relationship, that that was unique for you. And it could be flexible. But you know, benefits, historically, has not been an area that has been considered really innovative. And then she did the unimaginable. She left a cushy job with a big public company, threw her money on the table, and founded her own business serving the trucking industry. Drive my way. I was doing a HR process recruiting redesign for a large trucking company, helping them redesign their driver recruiting process because their number one issue is being able to attract and retain truck drivers, Mm -hmm. CDL, commercial driver's license truck drivers. And we did a whole redesign, so studied it, learned a lot, and I realized that was the perfect application for that idea I had way back in the early 90s of viewing the employee as the consumer in the employment relationship. At the end of the day, trucking is an enormous industry, $700 billion. It's vital to the economy. It has a growing driver shortage. It's 45,000 now, it's gonna grow to 175,000 by 2024. There's also a need for over 900,000 more drivers to be hired. And they've had turnover up over 100% for nearly a decade. There's enough work out there for everybody. It's just a matter of whether or not it was a fit. So for a truck driver, their life and their job are inextricably connected. So that fit piece of I can have the job, uh, the life that I want doing a job I love, is really key to getting them to stay. So I applied that concept to branching off and creating Drive My Way. A company that's changing the lives of truck drivers across the country. I had a driver call and say, you know, I'm an over-the-road driver, I love my job, I love my company, I've been doing this for many, many years, and I don't know where to turn because my wife just got diagnosed with cancer and I need to be home for her more, and my company doesn't offer anything other than over-the-road. So now I find myself looking for a job that's closer to home. And, you know, we can be there as people have things change in their lives when they need, you know, need to make, make a move. And sometimes we can even help facilitate those conversations within the same organization. Mm-hmm. They, they just don't even realize you've got somebody over here who now needs to do this and you didn't even know, you, you could be offering that to them and they wouldn't even leave you if you knew more about what, what was important mm-hmm. at the time. So in that regard, it's really exciting because we truly are able to make a difference in people's lives and in their careers. The seeds of success and failure are almost always present at the inception of the enterprise. Beth's tenacity showed up early. 
Her radio flyer sled and broken arm were but a prelude to her working life. And in her own words, you don't know what you're missing if you don't do it again. And great job on that. And that's Doug Ryder in our Founders series, Beth Potraz's story, and what a good one. And looking at human resources as human talent and viewing the employee as the consumer in the employment relationship. What a paradigm shift and what a smart shift too in this changing world and people circumstances changing. You want to keep your good people and you got to, well, you got to tailor things to their ever-changing needs. A great story, Beth Potraz's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we have one of our regular features from Stephen Rosiniak. This was his first story ever published in Chicken Soup for the Father and Son Soul which can be bought on Amazon.com. Stephen usually reads his entries for us, but today his son Michael will be performing this piece. He's well into his teenage years, still kisses me goodnight, and I'm sure going to miss it when he stops. In truth, he already stopped once a few years ago when he announced that he was a little too old for this, but changed his mind after we had a father and son talk. I've always known the spoken word can deliver a powerful message, but as I learned that night, sometimes the message needn't be voiced at all. And sometimes, the greatest lessons learned are taught to us, unknowingly, by our children. One of the things we talked about that night was an old friend of mine. We were going camping for the weekend, and when I stopped to pick him up, my friend and his father were working together on a classic car restoration. Grabbing his gear and before leaving, he said, See you on Sunday, Pop. And without hesitation, gave his father a kiss. So many years have gone by since then, and yet the memory of that moment remains a lasting impression of the love that my friend had for his father and demonstrated through the power of a son's kiss. My son and I talked about my father, too. I wish I could kiss Dad once more, but he passed away some years ago. We didn't kiss as grown men until well into my own adulthood. When I began to kiss him again, it was on special occasions, holidays, family gatherings, times where I could do so with neither of us feeling embarrassed or uncomfortable. It was such a wonderful feeling to express my love for him in such a way, and I knew he felt so too. Not since my childhood had kissing served as a routine declaration of affection between us, but once resumed, we had both come to expect it. On the night he died, and again one last time before he was laid to rest, I tenderly kissed him and whispered, I love you. This is what I had told my son, not with the purpose to embarrass him into continuing our nightly ritual, but instead to share with him a small piece of love that I had for my father and how much he'd meant to me. 
He listened, and when I was through, he kissed me. We haven't missed a night since. There have been times when I wondered if our nightly ritual was about to reach its untimely demise. The consequence of some youthful offense committed by my firstborn. With my parental dissatisfaction duly expressed, the ensuing verbal sparring does sometimes commence. We have been angry with each other, but this is how it is sometimes between parents and their children. Despite any ill feelings that may remain between us, and as the day draws to a close, we can never allow such emotions to interfere with the completion of our nightly kiss. When he is ready for bed, he finds me, and when I see him, any feelings of anger experienced earlier in the day quietly disappear. He stands before me, not quite a man, but still, and for the moment, my little boy. His vulnerability is exposed as he unknowingly relinquishes his assaults of late on his quest to charge, full speed, towards the inevitable destination known as manhood. He seeks my reassurance that we are okay and that he is still loved. A comforting hug, the nightly kiss, and the reaffirmation that whatever transgressions may have taken place previously, parental love remains unconditional, eternal. As he heads off the bed, I bask in the glow of fatherly love and the reassurance that he still needs me. Once again, our private world has been made right, if but only for one more night. I hope my son never feels uncomfortable kissing me, but if he ever does, I'll understand. Perhaps one day he'll be blessed with children of his own, and then he too will come to know the wonder and glory of fatherhood and the power of his child's kiss. You've been listening to Michael Rosiniak, and that is Stephen Rosiniak's son. And this was a piece that Stephen wrote for Chicken Soup for the Father and Son Soul. And we spend a lot of time on this show with that most important piece of social capital in America called the family, and the importance of fathers in son and daughter's lives, and the importance of mothers in sons and daughter's lives, too. And getting Michael to read the story was just a great turn because he's internalizing these words, and one day, hopefully, he'll be living them himself and passing this great tradition of a kiss between a father and son to teach what masculinity can look and feel like as opposed to merely what it sounds like, and that is the power of such a thing. If you remember, we did Frank Abagnale's story, and that's the character from Catch Me If You Can. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and take a listen to that, because it starts with Frank talking about his father and his father's kiss, and that every night, no matter what happened, his father would come in and kiss not only him, but his big Marine Corps brother, who was a star football player. And he loved it. And he knew his dad had come in even when he was asleep because the pillow had been touched or a blanket had been turned. And so dads out there, don't be afraid to kiss your kid and hug your kid. And you don't have to always say anything. Just a kiss and a hug, especially after a fight. It can go a long way. Chicken soup for the father and son's soul. Go to Amazon.com and get it. And that's Stephen Rosiniak's story, his son Michael's story, and so many father and son stories around this great country. And now it's time for our Why Minutes. And up next, we have Lindsay Marie. This next Why Minutes is about a thing called sports betting. Take it away, Lindsay. When you think of sports betting, what state do you think of? I'm no psychic, but I'm guessing you were thinking of Nevada. But why is that? 
It has a lot to do with something called the Bradley Act. The Bradley Act was passed by Congress in the 90s. Politicians said it was to protect us from the spread of gambling, but what it actually did was protect Nevada from competition. It restricted sports betting in every state, except, you guessed it, Nevada. For decades, if you wanted to bet on the games legally, you had to go all the way to Nevada. That was, until New Jersey finally had enough. They challenged the law and hit the jackpot. The law was declared unconstitutional, putting an end to Nevada's decades-old monopoly on sports betting. When government meddles in the marketplace, they often say it's to protect us. But what really ends up happening is they change the rules, they stack the odds. Ultimately, they pick winners and losers. And we, the consumers, are always the losers. The Why Minutes. Because why matters. continue with our American stories, and one of the most important things we talk about here on this show is the power of forgiveness. Rob Corbin began giving speeches on forgiveness after losing his father in 2008. His powerful testimony was delivered to the congregation at Temple Beth Shalom in Sun City, Arizona. It has often been said that the biggest battles fought are not those on the battlefield. They are fought within ourselves. And when you don't forgive, you are living in the past with the weight of yesterday on your shoulders. And it prevents you from being 100% in the present. I, uh, I know that feeling well because I too lived emotionally in the past for 46 years. I call it living in an emotional cage. The pain isn't always felt, but it's always present. And as long as it is present, we will continue to be prisoners of the past fighting, fighting a battle that each one of us deserves to be free from. On a religious sense, certainly God has an everlasting tear in his eye because he gave us, every human being, whoever lived and is alive today, the ability to leave the emotional cage of the past and to be emotionally free now and forever. But as the rabbi said a couple of weeks ago, and I was listening with an open ear, God won't do for us what he gave us the ability to do for ourselves. Is there an act so heinous, so cruel, so harmful, so life-changing that we can justify crossing the line, drawing a line, and determining This is unforgivable. If the severity of the harm done could justify not forgiving, Nelson Mandela would certainly be towards the front of the line 
Mandela was allowed one visitor a year for 30 minutes. No written correspondence in or out, no library, no resources. He was treated like a dog. Four years after Mandela was released from prison, he became the president of South Africa. And Nelson Mandela invited on his list of guests all of the jailers that treated him so harshly, so cruel, were all invited to come to his inauguration. And they all came. And they asked Mr. Mandela, Mr. Mandela, why? Why did you invite all these people that treated you so harshly, so cruel? They barely fed you, and they tortured you. Why did you invite them to your inauguration? And here's what he said. He said, because resentment is like drinking poison, thinking it's going to kill our enemies but it only hurts us. Senator John McCain, who recently passed away, spent five and a half years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Two of those years were in solitary confinement. He was not given proper medical treatment. They treated him very harshly. He was repeatedly beaten and tortured. Shortly before John McCain passed away, if you looked on television, you couldn't help but see some of the excerpts of some of the things that John McCain said in interviews before his death. And one of the things that John McCain said is that he has no regrets. John McCain said, I consider myself to be one of the most fortunate men who ever lived. And I'm one of the luckiest men alive. John McCain looked within to determine his feelings. And he let himself out of the emotional cage a long time ago. It's not what happens to us that determines if we carry the weight of yesterday on our shoulders. It's what we decide to feel in our hearts that will define if we live with peace and contentment in our lives or not. Detective Stephen McDonald, when he was 27 years old, as a detective, he was called to go to Central Park in New York and investigate some bicycle robberies. He saw three men who looked suspicious. When he approached the men and began a conversation, he looked down at one of the bicycles and was shot three times in the back and became a quadriplegic for the rest of his life. Six months after he was shot, his daughter was born. And he said at that moment, he said, you know what? He said, I need to be really thankful that God gave me the ability to be a father. 
Everyone in this room has the power that these people have. It is a gift from God to us to be able to repair ourselves emotionally. But God won't do for us what he gave us the ability to do for ourselves. Forgiving is not forgetting. It is remembering what happened, but free from the pain of the past. Forgiving is not condoning the actions of others or in any way diminishing what happened. Here's another thing about forgiving. It doesn't require acceptance by anyone. When we forgive someone, they are free to reject our forgiveness. But the act of forgiveness is complete once you have forgiven. There's no going back. It requires no response. It requires no acknowledgement. And here's the math. It takes two to hurt, but just one to forgive. So when you forgive, expect nothing in return. Because you're doing this for you. So that you can get what you need and what you deserve. And that is to be emotionally free. Forgiving should not be an attempt by us to correct someone who insists that they did nothing wrong. And here's a question. Think about this one. Is it better to be right or is it better to be content with a free heart? Free to accept all of the joy that life can bring us. Forgiving has nothing to do with the validity of their actions. Forgiving is not letting them off the hook or giving them a free pass. Forgiving is giving us a free pass to move forward, past the harm and the pain. And i got to tell you something else. Forgiving others is only part of it. We also have to forgive ourselves. I have uh, some spiritual judgment that I'm going to share with you about remorse and regret and shame. I know for me why God gave me the ability to feel shame and remorse and regret. It was never intended for any of us to own these feelings for the rest of our lives. God never intended that. God intended for us to own these feelings only long enough to learn from and move forward. And when we come back, we continue with Rob Corbin and his powerful speech about forgiveness after losing his dad in 2008. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to the testimony of forgiveness as given by Rob Corbin before the congregation at Temple Beth Shalom in Sun City, Arizona. My father and I had a difficult relationship for 46 years. And for 46 years, I lived in my own emotional cage. I never forgave my father for the hurt that I endured as a child. For 46 years, I could have forgiven my father, but I chose not to. And then one day, on a Saturday morning, I got a call from my stepmother informing me that my father had taken his own life that morning, and he was gone. I had 46 years to make it right, and now there was no more time to say what I needed to say, but I forgave him. I learned some things that day. I learned some life lessons that day that I want to share with you. One of the lessons that I learned that day is that there is no certainty that what can be done today can be done tomorrow. Because tomorrow is a mystery, not only to God. Time waits for no one. The other lesson that I learned is that when we judge someone and we base our feelings around that judgment, we don't always know all the facts. People who hurt us don't always share their deep pain. They don't always ask for help. I never knew that my father suffered from depression for the past 15 years of his life and was seeing a psychiatrist and was sinking deeper and deeper into a darkness that he could no longer fight. I never knew my father had medical problems, including COPD, that struggled, made him struggle to breathe at night. I never knew my father had been diagnosed with stage one of Alzheimer's a month before he took his life. My father chose not to share his pain and his battle with me. Had he done so, perhaps, I would have forgiven him a long time ago, seeing him in so much pain. I tell my story not to gain sympathy or pity, but as a reminder to all of us that there is often a bigger picture than what we see. And we should never wait for tomorrow to do what we can do today. Some of you in this room, like me, may have some unspoken words that you needed to say to someone in your life who is no longer here. I have a message for you. The message came to me two weeks after my father's death. And it's time for me to share with you this message. 
the message came to me in a synagogue in Prescott. I was sitting in a sanctuary trying to grasp the reality of my father's death. I was deep in grief, not knowing how I would make it through the day. And I opened a prayer book. I just randomly opened it. And when I opened the prayer book, I noticed it was somewhere in the middle of a book of 500 plus pages. And I looked at the page and I read the words. And that was the first and the last page I read that day because I found what I was looking for. And perhaps by listening to the words of what I read, you may find what you're looking for when it comes to some unspoken words that for some of you, you never got to say. It is a poem by Merritt Malo. And it's in our Jewish prayer book and can be found in prayer books throughout the world. And here are the words that told me exactly what I need to do. And perhaps it'll speak with you. The name of the poem is When I Die. When I die, give what's left of me away to children and old men who wait to die. And if you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street beside you. And when you need me, perch your arms around me. When you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me in the people I've known and the people who I've loved. And if you cannot give me away, at least let me live in your eyes and not your mind. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands and by letting bodies touch bodies and by letting go of children who need to be free. And always remember, love never dies. Only people do. So when all that's left of me is love, please give me away. When I read that poem, I knew what I needed to do to honor my father and to move forward in my life. Once you forgive, a transformation will take place and you will become a teacher rather than a victim. You will teach others by example once you have forgiven how to live a life emotionally free from the past. You will be an example for everyone you meet and everyone you talk to. This will be a lasting contribution to the world.
this will be part of your legacy. And you will make God very, very happy. I leave you with these words. It is not the past that defines who you are. It's what you do about it going forward. And what remarkable words by Rob Corbin. And again, a remarkable speech on forgiveness after losing his father in 2008, given at the Temple Beth Shalom in Sun City, Arizona. Your forgiveness stories, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And again, forgiveness is not forgetting. It is not condoning. And it doesn't require acceptance. It's complete the moment you do it. And once you forgive, he said, a transformation will take place. You will become a teacher and not a victim. Rob Corbin's story, his father's story in a way, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about movies on this show. And in this next story, you're about to hear from two guys who loved a movie so much when they were kids that they recreated the movie in their own backyard and on an epic level. Here's Jesse with a story. It all started in 1981 with Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones series starring Harrison Ford. It was that year's top-grossing film and one of the biggest box office earners of all time with upwards of $390 million in sales. But for whatever reason, the very following year, small town of Ocean Springs, Mississippi, 11-year-old Chris Stromopoulos and 12-year-old Eric Zala set out to recreate Raiders of the Lost Ark on video, scene for scene, every shot, every line of dialogue, the entire film using the original screenplay and score by John Williams. These kids are nuts. Not only did they pull it off, they pretty much nailed it. Shooting for this epic fan film began in 1982 and continued over the next seven summers on a shoestring budget of $5,000. It's quite possibly one of the best fan films ever made. They have screenings for this thing all over the world, and everybody in Hollywood knows about it. Now, the idea to remake the film scene by scene was hatched by then 11-year-old Chris Dramopoulos, but it was 12-year-old Eric Zala who had all of the experience. Yeah, I did a class film in sixth grade, which Chris saw. We rode on the bus to elementary school together, and he, as a result, mistakenly thought I knew something about film. So when he got this wacky idea to remake Raiders Lost Ark shot for shot, um, that and the fact that I borrowed his Raiders Lost Ark comic book on the bus is what led him to give me a call and say, hey, I'm remaking Raiders Lost Ark, do you want to help? And I thought all the sets were built, everyone was cast, I'd just sort of walk on and help. Little did I know, the only thing that Chris had done at that point was buy the published screenplay and 
as any good producer will do, cast himself as Indiana Jones. So where did Chris get the idea to remake what was then a major blockbuster release in the early 80s? He says it was all just about kids having fun. The whole sort of originating idea was really born out of more of a role-playing thing. It was a, it was a fantasy. It was, yeah, a creative project ensued and, and, a, and a lifelong collaboration ensued. But I don't think it was ever like... I don't ever think it entered our minds, you know, uh, like we sat down and, and thought, okay, well, we're about to put a, a whole, you know, the next seven years of our lives into a creative project. What else do you want to work on? You know, what other, what other things that, it's like, this is what we're doing, and we're kind of going for it, and, and we had no, long, uh, no idea how long it was going to take us. Mm-hmm. So we sort of dove in and did it. So I don't, I don't know if we had that spectrum of creative thinking yet. I think it was just like, hey, this is it. This is what we're doing. Mm. Wouldn't it be exciting if? And we just sort of went after it with that childlike energy. How did these kids in southern Mississippi back in the early 80s pull it off? Eric explains that it wasn't really easy. As a uh, 11 and 12-year-old, respectively, growing up in Mississippi in the uh, 80s, pre-internet, you know, how do you remake a $26 million movie on your allowance? You know, we knew nothing about it. And, and for the first year, so we kind of, figuratively speaking, groped around in the darkness as far as figuring out how you do that. You know, I wrote a 600-page shot list, and then it got to the end and realized it was utterly worthless. You know, close up, and he walks into room. I mean, what are you going to do with that? And, and then figured out, okay, no, storyboards. That's how the professionals do it. Yeah, yeah, and it was sort of by osmosis, uh, filmmaking on the fly. Now, filmmaking on the fly can sometimes get a little dangerous, especially when kids are in charge. One day, there was a fire on the set. Most of the interiors we shot in my mom's basement, which had this big rambling basement, multiple rooms. So uh, we would, we'd only shoot in the summertime. Um, you know, it was like summer camp. You know, we'd, we'd do production, pre-production during the school year, but during the summer, that was our time. So, uh, think 120% humidity, typical Mississippi summer day, um, start early and, um, and uh, saunter down to the basement where, you know, it's made up like a Nepalese saloon with my dad's old wine bottles lining the, uh, lining the, uh, the shelves and, and Jason, our cameraman, is wiring up squibs to go off in the wall. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, the the Nepalese saloon nearly burns down and um, our moms had shut us down the previous summer because, well, they spotted a shot with me with my back on fire and for some reason I had a problem with this. Um, so, but they allowed us to continue with uh, two words, adult chaperone. We found an adult even less responsible than we were. And so um, he helped us uh, guide us to when, you know, there wasn't a fire in certain edges of the frame, you know, more more gasoline over there. It's a wonder we didn't burn the house down. Don't try this at home, kids. When making a film, be it in Hollywood or Mississippi, there are several stages of production. There's pre-production, shooting, and post-production. Here again is Eric on the pre-production efforts to build this monumental tribute film. First summer was entirely nothing but pre-production, drawing storyboards, scouting locations, casting, costumes, props. Year two, we finally shot kept none of it because again we didn't know anything about filmmaking um, so there's very few shots that, that we actually kept from that first year but there are certain scenes that we just would shoot over and over and over again through uh, trial and error we slowly picked up things about uh, learning about composition lighting, blocking, acting and bit by bit we got better and only when we were satisfied with uh, the quality of a shot 
and of a scene, would we move on to the next? Now, these kids are obviously determined to get the film made, but there was another major hurdle that they would have to overcome back in the early 80s, and that was just simply having access to the film that they were trying to recreate. We only actually saw the movie a few times, you know, uh, uh, and worked pretty much from memory for the first handful of years until the film actually came out on Laserdisc in 84. And so we cobbled together absolutely everything that we could in terms of, you know, Raiders paraphernalia, you know, um, storybooks and magazines and, and bubblegum cards and, and all that stuff, the comic book and the screenplay, and, and to the best of our memory sat down and, and Eric, you know, chiseled out well over 600 individual storyboards that we then used as a blueprint. But we, you know, we went back to the theater as much as that we could, but... Um, you know, for those of us who kind of remember the 80s, there were, there, video stores were really in their infancy, that you couldn't really go down and rent whatever you wanted, you know. Um, there was an availability issue, you know, and, and it was in a movie when they kind of re-released things. So when the movie was re-released in the theater, we went back and watched it, you know, again, as much as our, you know, allowance would allow. So the boys ended up finishing their scene-by-scene remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark with their big premiere at an auditorium of the local Coca-Cola bottling plant in Gulfport, Mississippi, on August 12th, 1989. Chris Trompolis, Eric Zala, and Jason Lamb have just finished an eight-year recreation. The trio premiered their version of Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I hope to major in film and television. It's the hardest thing I've ever done so far. We've been following this story off and on for the past three years. Let's get you up to speed by turning back the hands of time. Action sequence, take one. It was shot out of sequence, so due to its long filming period, many actors randomly appear at different ages throughout the course of the film. They completed every scene in the film except for one that was too complicated and expensive for the kids to convincingly pull off. It's the scene from Raiders where Indiana Jones is in a fistfight with a big, bald Nazi next to an airplane with rotating propellers. At the last moment when Indy is getting his ass kicked, the Nazi gets hit by the plane's propeller and is shredded into a million bloody pieces that splatter all over the side of the airplane. But it's a pretty good effort considering it's the only scene the kids couldn't match. After setting Mom's basement on fire, it was probably a good idea to nix the death-by-propeller scene. The boys went their separate ways, going off to college, and the film was largely forgotten until 2003, when a film producer got his hands on the copy of the remake. Here's Chris on the film getting discovered all those years later. I didn't even tell my wife I was an Indiana Jones fan, so she had no idea that I had even done this Raiders thing. And so when it got discovered in 2003 and, like, exploded, you know, and got us into Vanity Fair and we were all of a sudden touring around the United States and going to Germany and Australia and, you know... My wife was like, um, so what's this Raiders thing, you know? I mean, can you, like, let me see it? You know, I'm like, eh, it's like this thing that I did. And, you know, I still had that, like, that reaction, you know? And she's like, this is cool. This is great. So this little remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, born out of the sweltering summer heat of the Mississippi swamp country by a couple of kids with nothing better to do, suddenly had the attention of Hollywood. Each of us um, received... A very kind letter from Mr. Spielberg thanking us for our very loving and detailed tribute. And uh, my wife actually, you know, photographed me at various stages of opening the letter and just sort of like gazing down, you know, stationary Steven Spielberg and, you know, this 
signature and you know this my boyhood hero who I spent my entire childhood emulating his his work um, uh, wow it can't get any better than this but I was wrong um, you know jump forward a year and we've been screening and written up in Vanity Fair and uh, we're in Los Angeles doing the Today Show and uh, the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn and we get a call from our agent we have an agent now um, Spielberg wants to meet you in his office tomorrow at noon God, <laughs> I was doing okay handling all this up to this point but now I feel kind of sick In the year 2014, Chris and Eric raised enough money to go back and film that scene that they couldn't quite pull off as 12 year olds thus completing the childhood project that started back in 1982 be sure to check out the documentary about this charming little story online. Show it to your kids. It's called Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories.